subbing is like a two and a half hour heart attack. <laughs> yes. Thank you, George Farmer. <laughs> That's exactly what he told me, bro. That's <laughs> what, he's, he came up with that, that, that phrase. He came up with that. And, 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 and the way he did it was just so cold because I think it was my first, it was my first night getting ready to sub on Broadway. And we're, we're in the, uh, in the dressing room and he's like, look, just relax. Um, but it's, you know, basically going to be like a two hour heart attack. (laughs) He told me relax. (laughs) <laughs> but it's going to be like a two-hour heart attack. I was like, thanks, George. <laughs> With a great face. Like, he didn't laugh, nothing, just walked away. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. If you like what you hear on the show and you want to know more, subscribe to Broadway Drumming 101 at broadwaydrumming101.com. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My name is Clayton Craddock, and my guest today is one of the flyest, coolest (laughs) members of the drumming community with the coolest hats ever, (laughs) Eric Brown. Thank you for coming. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I see him every time I see him on Instagram, every time I see him in person, he has a different hat on. I'm, I'm sure if you like pan around in your in your spot right now, you'll probably see a wall of hats and and another shelves shelves of hats. And <laughs> oh, do, you, do you have more hats than snare drums? I do actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being a part of this, man. I'm I'm glad to talk to you, and I'm glad to finally see you again. The last time I think we saw each other was another kind of Zoom meeting with other. Talented, talented drummers, uh, and it was a very fun, lively conversation. But I'd like to just get to know more about you and your experience playing shows, and uh, and how you got into the whole theater business, quote unquote, or industry. Were you a na- are you a native New Yorker? I am not. I'm born and raised in uh, California, in the Bay Area specifically. I was born in Oakland, California, raised in Richmond, California, a little small town next to Berkeley. Um, Yeah, I moved here in like 2002. And uh, yeah, been here ever since. So, Did you have a musical family? Yeah, I did. Um, Both parents uh, sang. And my mom played a little bit of keys. Um, My siblings, older brother, my two older brothers both play. One plays drums and he sings. The other plays bass. My sister is the music critic. She doesn't play anything. (laughs) Was she just sitting back with her arms folded like, "Mm, no, (laughs) y'all. Sometimes. (laughs) Uh. As long as she was dancing around and bobbing her head, it was all good. <laughs> are you the are you the oldest, youngest, in the middle? I'm the I'm the youngest of four. Wow. Are they yeah. all still in the Bay Area or are they everybody spread across the United States? No, everyone's in California, man. I'm the only one that's uh all the way on the East Coast. So did you play in bands in high school, junior high? Like what was the thing that said, you know what, I want to play drums? 
Um, honestly, it was uh, hearing my older brothers. They had bands that rehearsed in my garage, in our garage. My parents were cool enough to let them, you know, have bands and practice in our home. So I, there were always musicians coming through and bands practicing literally in our garage. And uh, there was this one moment um, back in the 70s, my uh, brothers had a residency um, in Japan with a band that they were, that they had established um, in the, in the Bay area. And uh, I remember when they came back, it was like a three month residency back then. Um, and they came back and they rehearsed, man, they sounded so good. It just blew my mind. Cause I remember how they sounded before they left. They were good. But when they came back from that residency, it was, they were just like on another level. And even as a kid, when I heard them at that time, I was like, this is what I want to do. Did you get a chance to sit in and play in that band at all? Yeah, um, all the time. And I would get in trouble because, you know, they would leave their instruments there. So I would always sneak in the garage and play um, when they would leave. But they would let me, you know, sit in and play and jam with them, you know, at, at the uh, at the rehearsals and afterwards. So that was always cool. What kind of music was it? It was R&B. They did covers. They also had some originals, but uh, mostly covers. All the, you know, the Shaka Khan and Brothers Johnsons and uh, all of that. I mean, it, it was it was a really killing unit. It was like bass, drums, keys, two saxophone players. Um, I say guitar, right? And, uh, and another female vocalist. One of the um, members actually worked with Prince. Her name was Bonnie Boyer. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, she uh, from Oakland. Um, rest in peace. Um, yeah, but she was like another, like another Shaka, but she played, you know, played keys. I think she worked in Prince's. Uh, I think it was a sign of the times. Did she also she sing? A, did she sing on Diamonds and Pearls? Is that her? No, Rosie Gaines. She was from the Bay Area, also. Ah. But uh, Bonnie was right before her. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Were there any drummers that you listened to on the radio or saw in concert and you were like, you know what, I want to play like that person? Uh, yeah, there were there were several. Um, I mean, there were just some local cats in the Bay Area, like right in my neighborhood that were killing. Um, uh, my brother was one, uh, Tom Brown. Um, this guy named Dazan Claiborne who lived around the corner, he was lefty. And... I would go and just sit and literally he would just let me sit there and, you know, watch him practice. He was another amazing cat still plays today. Um, there was another guy named Carrie who used to play in my brother's band. Um, he was amazing. So, I mean, I, I came up around a lot of drummers. Uh, Sheila E was very accessible. Uh, you could see her like in the local parks, you know, back in the day, um, playing with her dad's group or whoever came through. Um, Mosswood Park in Oakland, California. You could see Larry Graham back in the day. Um, yeah, it was crazy. So I'm yeah. I'm dating myself a little bit. Yeah, I'm an OG. <laughs> oh, OG. I'm now I'm bringing up a lot of names. People are like, "Wait, Larry Graham? The Larry Graham? <laughs> Graham Central Station? Yes, that one." <laughs> did you start your own band? I did. Um, 
<laughs> I had a few. Uh, my first band as a kid was called the Box Top Band, which was <laughs> thanks to my sister for that name because we literally didn't have drums. We played on boxes. It was me and a couple of my best friends. <laughs> wow. We put on records and played to the records on boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you play any gigs in that group? Oh, uh, man, in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> Here come the box tops. Oh, snap. <laughs> in, in backyards, man, we would put on records and, and entertain parents and whatnot, and whatnot. Oh, they were so cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. As a as a teenager, I was I was heavily involved in church. And um, but, I, you know, I, I still loved you know all types of music. Um, I was listening to a lot of contemporary jazz at the time, like, you know, Yellow Jackets, uh, Weather Report and that sort of thing. So I wanted to do this um, gospel jazz group. So, you know, I hooked up with a lot of, a few of my, you know, favorite musicians, peers, and we created this gospel jazz group. And we were actually doing gigs, playing at a lot of different churches and basically, um, you know, creating our own music based on that Yellow Jackets uh, weather report-ish kind of vibe um and it was cool for a little while you know we all just eventually you know went our own separate ways and started you know doing our own gigs but that was really cool i'm really you know close with a lot of those musicians i had um raymond mckinley who still works with sheila e now bass player um sandra manning uh sandra is a amazing organist she's still in the bay area worked with Lettucey. Um, who else? Uh, Ricky Alexander was a sax player. He works with Tony, Tony, Tony now. Um, did we have a guitarist? No, there was no guitarist. And yeah, and I played and did some singing back then. I wasn't singing as much as I am now with my band, but yeah, we were, we were doing some things. <laughs> did you record uh, a CD or a cassette back then? We did uh, like a demo cassette or something back in the day, but th that was the extent of it. It never went beyond that. During high school, I guess, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do professionally? Did you say, you know what, I want to go to music school or I want to stay here. I want to go to L.A. I want to go to New York, Nashville. Yeah, man, it was I mean, I was all over the place in high school as far as what I wanted to do musically. I knew I wanted to be in music. I knew I wanted to, you know, work professionally as a drummer. Um, but for some reason, L.A. didn't appeal to me, man. I knew that's where a lot of things was, you know, was happening. And a lot of cats were going there getting work. But and I went there and hung for a little while, you know. Um, back in the day after I got out of high school, because like I said, a lot of my friends were going there and they were getting work. Um, for some reason, man, it just didn't, it didn't, the vibe and the scene at that time did not resonate with me, you know. Um, a good friend of mine, um, Eric Smith, killing bass player now, he's gone on, done very well for himself, worked with Rihanna, he's Layla's MD now. Um, Back in the day, I think his first tour was with Sheila. So I would hang out with him. We were really tight. So I would go to a lot of his rehearsals uh, before he'd go on tour or whatever. And um, and it was cool, you know. But again, for some reason, it just didn't, you know, res resonate with me. I, I wanted to do um, 
I just wanted to explore a little more, you know? Um, so eventually what I ended up falling into was this really great gig with uh, Michael Frontan Spearhead. Um, and I worked with Spearhead for, I don't know, maybe five years, something like that, touring. And that kept me in the Bay Area um, for for a while. I was able to um, work with Edwin Hawkins, um, Wayman Tisdale. Um, I played on his album, actually, the one uh, Watch Me Play. Um, Lettucey's first album, which is really hard to find, um, I, I just noticed. <laughs> but her first album, I was on that one. Um, played on the hit song that, by the way, um, what tune was that? Um, Take Time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, um, you know, there was there was some good things happening in, in high school. Like uh, back to your question, you know, I was all over the place. I played in the marching band. There was a gospel choir. Um, at the time, there were a couple of uh, jazz bands at my high school. Shout out to El Cerrito High. Um, but, you know, what I enjoyed most really was the marching band. Um, as, as little as I am carrying this big drum <laughs> and what we would do was would uh, we would mimic Cal Berkeley's marching band, like everything. We would go to their their uh, rehearsals um, and we would watch them on the field and we literally copied most of their routine. That was that was El Cerrito marching band's whole thing. So that was that was a blast and it helped build up a lot of stamina. <laughs> so you do you're, you're with uh, Spearhead. You're playing on a bunch of different albums and you're doing some touring. Did you decide to move to New York and say, let me just try this New York thing? Like what made you come to New York? Um, the opportunity came up, man, for, for me to move. Um, uh, I was married at the time. Um, and, you know, when the opportunity came up, uh, you know, we took it. Um, and, you know, eventually um, that marriage didn't work out. So I stayed um, in New York um, and continued, you know, to hustle and do my thing out here and got married again <laughs> and uh, and haven't looked back, man. When somebody comes to New York like yourself and, you know, I'm here now for whatever reason, they come with somebody or they just decide to move here. What would you recommend them doing in order to meet musicians? You have to get out, you know, go to the local clubs, uh, you know, the jazz clubs, go to the jam sessions. Um, and you got to meet people and network, you know, just like with any industry, you need to network and know people. You know, it's 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 uh, it's what you know and who you know. So when you say hustle and network, what does that actually mean? It's like get out there and hustle. You can just keep running and run from club to club. But in networking, okay, I, I, I need a network of people. What does that actually mean in practice? Good question. Um, it means a lot of things. And it, it depends on the direction that you want to go as a musician. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if cats just have a clear idea of what they want to do, that's you know, you're, you're already, you know, winning. Um, 
in my opinion, you know, have a clear idea or at least as close <laughs> to a real clear idea of what it is that you want to do, what you want to accomplish. You know, if you're trying to, um, you know, be in the straight ahead world, if you're trying to, you know, play jazz, um, then you need to go to smalls. You need to go to those jam sessions. Um, I would say you need to find out about the, the new school, the different schools in the area. Um, get to know a lot of, uh, those students that have, that have gone there. You know, it, yeah, it, it, it means a lot of things. It just depends on what direction you're, again, that you're trying to go into as a musician. So you wound up meeting a bunch of different people. And I met you through George Farmer, who happened to be the bass player with this singer, songwriter, performer named Omar. And you were playing with Omar at the time. And I forgot what club it was. I don't know if it was the Bowery Ballroom or it was some, maybe it was a, it was a place on Houston Street. I, I definitely remember that. So how long into your New York City career were you connected with Omar and how did you get connected with him? Uh, that gig, I think, happened like within the first five years of moving to New York. Um, that was, let's see, my connect with that was through a bass player friend of mine who we also released a project together, uh, Mike Grio, um, and uh, a keyboard player named Raleigh Neal. Um, I think they were the ones that received the call um, to put together a U.S. band for Omar uh, from the U.K. And um, we were, you know, doing some some local gigs together. Mike, Mike Grio and Raleigh, uh, myself, we were doing some local gigs. So when it came up, they, of course, reached out to me. And did you wind up doing a U.S. tour with him or was it just basically some spot dates here and there? We did a lot of spot dates. I never did like a, you know, an extensive tour with Omar. Um, but yeah, we did a lot of, uh, a lot of U.S. Uh, spot dates. So when you're in New York City, you know, five years in, you're playing with Omar, you're playing with a bunch of different people. Was there something that said, you know what, let me check out this whole theater thing? Or was that not even on your radar? No. That's the amazing thing about it. Um, theater was not, Broadway wasn't on my radar, um, you know, because I'm not a, a strong reader. So, you know, my impression was that you had to be a killing reader, sight reader, and, you know, and be able to play it like you've been living it. So, you know, of course, you know, I looked at it, but to me, that was like a, <laughs> a world that's in a whole nother world in the distance. <laughs> and, um, you know, George Farmer, uh, I believe he was working on a show. Um, oh my gosh. I can't remember the name of, uh, Bring Awakening. Bring Awakening. And, um, and he invited me to one of the rehearsals. I, I think we were rehearsing, um, with a musician friend of mine, Nick, Nick Roth. We were, doing like a trio thing and um he had like all this music and i noticed you know it was spring awakening and he was telling me about the show and he said hey are you still interested in you know in doing this you know when he first got the gig 
um, I told him that, you know, I was like, man, if I could ever just come and, you know, check it out, I'd like to. Um, so, you know, he eventually invited me to one of the rehearsals and, um, man, I loved it. And, I, and from there I was like, you know, I can, I can do this. I think I can do this. <laughs> Did you wind up subbing for the drummer there? I never subbed there. Um, uh, but I thought the show was dope. I, I really loved the music. Um, yeah, and then, you know, fast forward to to you, to Memphis, uh, the same thing happened. You know, he, you know, George reached out to me again and was like, yo, we're doing the show, uh, Memphis, and, um, you know, they need some subs. And I was like, yeah, man, give, you know, give them my name. And then here you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that whole experience, even just the way it happened and how I prepared for it was just like, <laughs> what a ride. Preparing for Memphis the Musical and subbing for that show, what was the process that you went through? Well, uh, first of all, man, thank you um, and to George for bringing me in. Um, what I did and... I appreciate these words. You gave me many words back then, but one of the main things I remember you telling me was you were like, look, play this gig like you're trying to take it from me. <laughs> wow, I said that? That's interesting. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> oh, yeah? Watch this. <laughs> like, Okay. <laughs> that's probably, I probably would have said something like that. Wow. That's interesting. But I get it. I, after, you know, after getting in there and understanding the vibe and how things work and what, and what Kenny Seymour, the director, uh, wanted and what the, what the show, what the world of Broadway wants when it comes to subs, they basically want to feel like there isn't a sub playing that night. You know, they want it to sound like it always does. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, like more funky or less funky. It needs to be the same, <laughs> period. As close to the same as you can get, you know, get get there. But my process, man, um, honestly, I had the audio from you and I had the music. Um, I would religiously listen to that music and I memorized the entire show um, while going through the book, of course. And, you know, um, but that was my process. I, I, it was very, um, <laughs> not, not, not something I, w I would recommend most people do, <laughs> but my way of learning and I, I wanted, I was so eager to get in there and do a great job. Um, I literally shut down for like a month as far as listening to any other music. I literally would wake up. I would listen down to the, the entire show. Um, it was like a routine for me. I, it was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. At least three times a day, I would listen to the entire show. Um, throughout the day, like I made a playlist and everything, you know. Um, I would go to the toughest song, which was like a big, dance routine song. I had all these hits and that was 
I mean, I would listen. That's what I did. I listened to it religiously. Um, I was able to, you know, go and practice and uh, share the tune because uh, you need to know that with Broadway, you don't get to necessarily come in and play with the entire orchestra and work through the entire show. <laughs> when you come in to play it, you that's it. <laughs> they hire you for a date and you come in and you play it and either you come back or you won't. <laughs> and, and you came back over and over again throughout the entire run of the show. And I appreciate all of that hard work that you did. Now, you know, it's funny now that you said that as far as playing, what was the quote again? Play the, play this gig as if you're trying to take it from me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I, I probably got that from a friend of mine who talks about his son, who's now a drummer at a college near me. And uh, he's basically saying, you know, you got to get out there when you get done with school, you got to get out there and go to New York City or wherever you're going to go. You got to compete with Clayton. You got to compete with Eric Brown. You got to compete with all these people. And, you know, he basically says these words like, you know, you got to get out there and basically kind of take their gig. Now, the thing is, you don't want to get out and have this attitude. Of, I'm going to take somebody's gig. But the reason why I said that is because I wanted you to play it as good or better than me so that I wouldn't have any issue leaving and saying, oh, my God, I'm, I hope he's going to do all right. I want you to play it better than me. And if they like you better than me, that's that's good. I'm not you know, I realize after several years of being in New York City. I'm good at what I do and I know how good I can play and I'm confident in what I can give to somebody. So if somebody comes and tries to take my gig, well, if you get it, then you get it. I'm going to go someplace else. There's other people that are going to hire me or I'll, I'll find other opportunities, but it's not about trying to be cutthroat and trying to actually literally take somebody's gig. I mean, that's just not a cool thing to do. But right. if, if Eric, you said, you know, I want you to come here and sub for me, and play this, play the hell out of this show, and 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 kill it. It's basically the kind of the same sentiment that I'm is trying to convey when I say yeah. I want you to take this gig from me. No, I, I totally understood that, you know, um, and uh, and that was my thing. I was, you know, trying to copy everything that you did, every, every drum fill, you know. Which, by the way, there was one particular one that used to kick my ass all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Kicking of it, for some reason, would always trip me up. And I'm like, damn, what is... <laughs> Dude, I've practiced... I, I can't tell you how... <laughs> I would sit down on your kit before some, you know, I'd have get there a little early to, to warm up. That would be the first thing I would do, just <laughs> warming up, just to get my sticking together on that. It, yeah. That's funny. You know, one thing that I remember you telling me, I think you said it multiple times, maybe even on the Zoom call that we had uh, with Damon Mendez, subbing is like a two and a half hour heart attack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, George Farmer. <laughs> That's exactly what he told me, bro. That's <laughs> what, he's, he came up with that, that, that phrase? He came up with that. And, and, and 
and the way he did it was just so cold because I think it was my first, it was my first night getting ready to sub on Broadway. And we're, we're in the, uh, in the dressing room and he's like, look, just relax. Um, but it's, you know, basically going to be like a two hour heart attack. <laughs> and you're like, what the? <laughs> he told me relax. <laughs> but it's gonna be like a two-hour heart attack. I was like, "Thanks, George." <laughs> With a great face, like he didn't laugh, nothing, just walked away. I'm like, in the way he Thanks. said it too, like yeah, it's going to be like a two and a half. Exactly. <laughs> One thing about subbing: once you get the first show done, then you get asked to go back. Have you ever had a sophomore slump where you're like, I got this, I got this. I don't have to pay attention too much anymore. And you go in and you're like, oh man, you mess up that, that fill or you mess up something else. What was your second experience? Like, or was it, was it as good as the first? Man, my whole, cause I think you started me with like a week or something like that. Um, and all of them, as I, as I recall was, they were all intense. <laughs> It didn't, it didn't feel easier until maybe two weeks in something like that. Um, just all of it was, <laughs> was super intense for me. Um, at least for a good two weeks. Then I began to, you know, settle in more, um, after about two weeks. One thing that, uh, George, uh, Farmer said that really helped, um, was he said, look, uh, one song at a time, one song at a time, just look at the show that way. Don't try not to look at it like this, like all of this music, one song at a time, finish one song. Boom. Okay. Done. Next song, one song at a time. Look at it that way and do not live in your mistakes. You make a mistake. You got to really you know, get your Zen on, keep moving, keep moving. Do not live in the mistake, you know, start to, you know what I mean? You start to digress and your playing begins to digress. You cannot do that. I mean, on any gig, but especially in, you know, Broadway uh, or any kind of theater gig, whether it's off Broadway, you got to, you know, stay focused. Fine. You miss that. Keep moving. There's, you got to, <laughs> you got a whole show going on here. Keep going. <laughs> That's great advice. So after Memphis, were you um, asked or did you think about other shows or what, did you get involved in any other kind of theater experience? Um, I did. Uh, there was uh, Lady Day. That was very that was very special to me. That was very big um, with uh, Audra McDonald. Um, that's one show that just blew me away, um, you know, on many levels. Um, uh, anyone that knows about Audra McDonald, if you, if you know, you know. Um, if you don't, just go and look up that show and close your eyes and you'll, <laughs> you're listening to Billie Holiday. It's that, you know, she's that, uh, she's that amazing. Um, thanks to you again for bringing me in to sub on that one. 
um, that was uh, just a super dope experience. Have you ever had those situations where you're on the you're on stage and somebody like like that you idolize? Say, for instance, Larry Larry Blackman came and saw you play. Would you be like, "Oh shit, it's Larry Blackman"? For those of them don't know Larry Blackman, he <laughs> was the drummer for a legendary funk soul semi rock band called Cameo, and that Eric Brown and I know very well his style of playing and his drumming. Say for instance, somebody like him comes to a show, would you start changing things or were you just like, you know, this is, this is me. You came to see the show. Like, how would you, how have you reacted when you saw people that you idolize at your shows? Um, great question. Um, I used to, uh, you know, get, get a little frazzled. I used to, um, but not, not anymore at a certain point. And I mean, I had, I've had to, to grow to that point, you know, basically that, that inner conversation that you just mentioned, you know, you have to be confident in your own playing. And if whoever is in the room to check, to check out the show, to check you out they're they're there to see you do your thing. Um, you know, and yeah, of course they're musicians. They're going to judge you. Of course. <laughs> That's what we do. Even if we say that we're not, of course. <laughs> we're, 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 you know, talk about judging people. <laughs> when you go see shows, do you do you revert back to your sister with the folded arms and looking at the box top band? <laughs> I try to enjoy whatever I'm I'm checking out, you know, and you know, and and that's it. I mean, but yes, in my mind, I'm like, you know, I'm like, ooh, nice. I'll give it up. You know, great choices. He's killing. If it's not, I'm like, oh, okay. I probably wouldn't have done that, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, but yeah, man, to, to answer your question, I mean, that's, uh, that's just the thing of, uh, of, of confidence and, and being, uh, sure about your own ability and, uh, and just going into, you know, any gig and doing what you do. And again, that, you know, everyone has their own journey of getting to that point. Some get there sooner than others, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I mean, at one point, man, it used to, it used to, uh, used to shake me up a bit. Uh, I'll tell you, um, back, back in the Bay area. Um, I don't know if you heard of Walter Hawkins and the Hawkins family. That's like, you know, gospel royalty. And, um, uh, one of my, uh, one of my quote unquote idols was, uh, Joel Smith, who, played on all those recordings, bass and drums. And he was also an accessible cat in the Bay Area. So you'd see him around, you know, you could call him up and chop it up with him. Very humble, very, very cool guy. Um, rest in peace. Um, but man, if sometimes he, he would pop up to your gig, to a local gig, and I'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> But he was so cool, you know. He was so cool. Sometimes he would sit in and play. Um, there were times he would even, you know, talk to me afterwards and just, you know, wouldn't even be about music. It would just be about whatever, you know, which would, you know, make me a little more relaxed. And, you know, if it were uh, a local club gig, so on that next set, I'd go back and, you know, and just play, man. And he'd stay there and chill, wouldn't even, wouldn't even you know, bother with sitting in, just stay and hang. Um, but 
moving uh, forward to Lady Day. <laughs> the funny thing about that, I remember you telling me this, ter uh, uh, Carrington, when she came in, uh, when she came to the gig, and all the different celebrities who would just pop up at that show. So whenever I would sub, I would purposely not wear my glasses, and I made it a point <laughs> not to look into the audience because I didn't want to trip because I knew there would be some heavy cats <laughs> coming through there checking out the show. And sure enough, one day uh, when I subbed, uh, I think it's uh, Delfeo. Del uh, Marcellus. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, he showed up. He came backstage and was like, hey, man, nice plan. <laughs> I was like, great. I was like, exactly. This is exactly why <laughs> I don't wear my glasses <laughs> to this gig and look out into the audience. <laughs> but yeah, man, I, I would do the same thing. You know, um, I would come to that gig and, and just play it. Just try and play the play the music to the best of my ability and make it make it feel good, make it feel or, organic. And, um, you know, the only way to really do that is, is just, you know, rely on your own skills, not trip off who's there, who's not, and trying to impress anyone. Just give your best, play for the music, you know, play, play, play the show. And, you know, and bring, and bring your, your own personality and your own vibe. That's, that's why you're there in the first place. You, you would have never gotten the call if, if, you know, you didn't have, you know, what it, what it takes to bring what's needed to that show. And that's why I said, when I got my third Broadway show, ain't too proud. It was February of 2019 when we started, I was like, you know what, Eric, you need to get on this now. And I, from Memphis to Lady Day to Ain't Too Proud, I was like, who am I? Oh, Eric, you've always been there for me. And I know you do a great job. I love the way you play. I know that you're going to be prepared. And you worked with Kenny Seymour before. And I said, as soon as we started, I gave you the book. I, gave, I think I gave you the music, too. And I don't know what I did, but I did what we usually do. And I got you in there when we first started rehearsing. And, and you were there, like when we were kind of still creating the, the show for the the Broadway run. Yeah, and you were the first sub, from, from what I remember, to get in there and sub for me there too. Did you have the same kind of process that you uh, took on for the other shows for Ain't Too Proud as well? Yeah, pretty much. Um, even though I I knew the music and grew up on the music, um, you know, there's there's the then there's the Broadway version. There's, there's, and there's the Kenny Seymour version. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's so many, you know, different components, you know, um, what I, what I like to tell cats a lot of times, especially during that time, because I had a lot of guys asking me about the show and I would tell them, you know, yeah, it's pretty much, you know, they play the songs like the record, but it's not like you just come in like you're doing a, a you know, wedding gig or a cover gig there are specific arrangements, <laughs> you know, then there's, then there's uh when there's dialogue, you know, the music changes, you know, there's so many different components. Um, so you, ha you have to learn the, the Broadway <laughs> way of, of, of playing and the, and the theater way of playing, um, which brings me to mind, brings to mind a very small detail, but it makes a big difference. Um, that I start doing a lot 
um, once I started subbing for you, and that's playing uh, playing the rim playing the rim shot and not playing rim, playing the snare, you know, full out rim shots, and then you know getting getting another sound without playing the rim shot makes a makes a big difference. So the Broadway version of Ain't Too Proud or Get Ready, how is it different from what you do on a club date? Um, well, it's very specific. <laughs> uh, the songs are arranged, um, as always, you know, with, with Broadway. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's just, you know, a lot of, a lot of different hits and, and nuances that, that all matter. <laughs> all, all notes matter. <laughs> <laughs> In, in theater, there are no there are no wasted notes. I mean, you know, in general, as, as as a player, I don't think one should waste any notes anyway. But trust me, in in theater, there are no wasted notes. You know, everything that you play or don't play, it it matters, <laughs> and you will get called on it. I have many times, <laughs> even during a show. <laughs> So when you when you play notes that that aren't in the show or uh, make a mistake and you get notes from a conductor, how do you take that? Do you take it personally? You're like, I didn't mess up, or what? Like, what's your approach to taking notes? Oh man, um, getting notes. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, number one, in for me, I've learned now that. <laughs> and I always say this to myself after subbing out, you know, um, and Kenny Seymour was always, uh, except for Lady Day was the, uh, conductor. So I would, my, my motto was no news is good news. <laughs> if he didn't have anything or whoever the conductor is, um, didn't have anything to say to me after the show and was just like, good job. See you whenever. or good night <laughs> that to me was praiseworthy i'm like thank you god <laughs> you know um but you know on the other hand when there's notes i'm i'm open to it i mean um because the goal is uh if they're giving you notes they they want you to improve um and you know they do want you back um if you didn't do well and there are no notes that's like the you're done <laughs> you know what i mean because that's they don't really want to have you back why give you any notes yeah i have notes and i don't like them so <laughs> <laughs> but you know to answer your question man no i'm i've always been open uh to uh to improvement um, in theater and, and getting notes after a show because, you know, I, I take them to heart. No, I don't take them personal. Um, although it is personal <laughs> because we, we, you know, we put our hearts and, and soul into this and to what we do. So, you know, you take those notes, you take that energy and, you know, make something good. You go back and you improve and you come back and you kill it, you know, because that's what they want. You know, it, it, it may seem harsh, it might hurt or whatever. Um, but the goal is for you to get it right. 
you know, if, if a conductor is giving you notes, um, Hey, I need you to do this. I need, and fortunately, you know, conductors I've worked with have always been, you know, very cool. Um, uh, they've been very, very warm. So when giving notes, you know, a lot of times they're like, look, boom, 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 X, Y, Z. I need you to do this. Remember at, at this point at bar, whatever, whatever, make sure we get this and, you know, you know, but great job, but get it right. (laughs) (laughs) You recently had your own show off Broadway, Smokey Jill's Cafe. Yes. Tell me how did you get that, uh, how you got that, and what that experience was like. Um, John Miller, uh, uh, contractor, uh, reached out to me for that, uh, for that job. Um, and it originally ran, I think, what, like a month or two in Maine before coming to Broadway. Um, the cool thing about that is I was able to, you know, in the workshop, um, was able to basically create that book. So, uh, it was pretty much whatever I played, how I was feeling the music, um, uh, is what, you know, what the book ended up becoming. So, um, you know, by the time we were in production and running the show in Maine, I mean, it was, you know, it was just me, (laughs) you know, I was just playing what I knew. I basically created, uh, the show, you know, um, as far as the drum, the drum book that is. So, so when people hear that you created the book, do you have to write out the music or cause somebody, people, people don't really understand how this all works. John yeah. Miller calls you and says, Hey, I got this show called Smokey Joe's cafe. It's going to Maine. Are you interested? And you're like, sure. Then what happens? You go to Maine and you're doing what? Right. So, um, basically we had, if I remember right, maybe a couple of weeks of rehearsal before going to Maine. And then we had, uh, more rehearsal, of course, once we were in Maine. Um, so workshopping is basically, uh, you know, going through every nuance of the show. Uh, the dancers and, and actors are, are, working out dance routines and music is being created around those routines. There are changes being made right there in real time. Um, and there's someone to, you know, basically write out my drum part. Um, so every, everything that I'm playing, you know, there's a guy sitting there basically, you know, writing it out. Um, and, uh, I'm sorry. What was, what was the other so There's you're there for yeah, that. Yeah. And well, you're in Maine, you're, you're going through the music, the choreography, the songs, and you, you, you put on performances of the show in Maine. Like what happens when you were up there? So in Maine, yeah, there was a, uh, we were in Ogonquit, Maine. Um, believe the na- I can't remember the name of, of the theater. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's basically uh, like a mu- musical uh, theater where they where they put on uh, productions, and it ran like I said for for about a month, eight shows eight shows a week, and uh, we all you know stayed there, 
Um, and uh, the show was pretty successful there. Actually, uh, most uh, most of the shows were sold out. Um, and living living in Maine for that for that time was was great. Great lobster, of course. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was the same thing, man. We had uh, maybe two or three weeks um, of rehearsals, um, you know, and really getting things tight and together. And, and once it started to run, you know, we were we were in it. Um, once it be once it came to um, off Broadway, um, I think the Forty Second Street Theater, um, we did the same thing. We had you know several a uh, few weeks of rehearsals. Um, there were some changes made to the music and the whole production um, to just tighten it up. And, um, you know, it's the same thing. We started it started again. We had, you know, opening night and, uh, you know, I think it ran, I'm not sure how long it ran, maybe a, a year, maybe something like that. Not, not that long, but, you know, but it was, it was good. Being a chairholder, as opposed to someone coming in to sub. Well, well, first of all, I, I kind of know what it's it's like having the chairholder. You don't have to worry as much, and you're not subbing, and the, the heart attack factor is much lower. <laughs> Even though you still have to perform at the same level every night. Do you, did you feel um, that you were much more relaxed and, and how did you wind up keeping the show at a high level after doing the same thing over and over again for almost a year or, you know, the whole length of the show? Like what did you do to, to maintain the high quality that you expect of yourself and of the show? Yeah. Um, great question. Um, yeah. By the time, um, I mean, we were, you know, in, in production, uh, um, I mean, the the band was amazing, and we had all you know lived with this music uh, for a few months, so it was just a part of us. So we were a, a real band by that time. By the time it you know hit Broadway, I mean, we were all relaxed and just having fun, really, and just uh, you know playing the show as if you know we were on tour. I mean, it was, you know, it was just like second nature by that time. So it was night and day. There was no heart attack factor. It was just, <laughs> it was really just fun every night, um, to be honest, um, because the show was just in us at, at that point. So we could, you know, really, um, you know, tweak the, uh, the, the dynamics, you know. Um, we, we all had a really good command of the show. And like I said, I mean, we, we were a band, so, and it felt like that. Were there a lot of people reaching out to you to sub? Um, not a lot, but it was pretty amazing, um, <laughs> to, to be on that end of it, um, looking for subs, uh, you being one of them, uh, I believe Abe Fogle reached out to me, which blew my mind. <laughs> um, um, there was, uh, let me see, jo Joshua Priest, um, who actually did play, did a killer job. Um, and yeah, that, that was about it. I, I, I reached out to a few other cats who, you know, I thought would have, uh, would have done well. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely, uh, it felt, it felt strange being on, the, <laughs> on that end. 
you know, look looking for subs, but uh, but it was cool. Subbing on shows. What are some things that you should never do as a sub on a Broadway show? Number one, don't get too comfortable. And by that, uh, you know, and this is just this what this is me. This is how, what I <laughs> the approach I like to take. I mean, cats can do what they want, but I say number one, don't get too comfortable. And by that, I mean. Keep in mind, you know, just your 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 overall attitude, how you how you deal with people, um, you know, kind of treat it like a almost you know like a corporate job. When you come in, you you meet people. You know what I'm saying? Put on your put on your uh, your good guy, good female, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know attitude. Um, you're working with a lot of different people, um, come from different walks of life, uh, you know, different personalities, uh, just, you know, just keep that in mind. Uh, even if you're, you know, you do a great job, that's cool. Um, just, you know, just remember, you know, uh, just keep it cool. That's, uh, one of the main things. Um, I would also say, uh, you know, there's no unless the unless the show is open uh, for improvisation. Um, you know, don't 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 improvise. You know, ever play the play the show. Um, that's you know that's Broadway. Um, you know, it's it's uh, you might know the song. Say, for example, ain't ain't too proud. I mean, you, you know, sure you may have heard it all your life. You know, but this show has a specific arrangement of the song and how how it is to be played. Play it that way. That's it. There's no discussion about it. Well, I think no, don't <laughs> just <laughs> play the show. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's the main thing, man. That's the main thing I would say as far as don'ts and don't be late. <laughs> Don't be late. Ever. Don't be that guy. Unless it's somebody <laughs> or girl. <laughs> unless somebody's dying. <laughs> you better be in a car accident or something. <laughs> you know, but trying that, you know, things happen, of course. But yeah, that's these are common sense things, I, I think. But yeah, just, you know. Didn't you also do um, the Bob Marley thing? Yeah. Oh yes, um, Marley in um, in Baltimore, man. That was that was a great experience. Uh, what twenty sixteen, maybe? That was a, just a really beautiful. That whole experience was really beautiful. I, I uh, a lot of those people have gone on to to do some really amazing things. But yeah, that was another one where um, I didn't really. It was more about the feel. Um, as far as far as the approach to the music with that than it was about you know reading so i had to really dig into uh the whole bob marley world and uh and really uh get the right vibe and the feel uh for playing reggae um and it is it is it is very specific it's you know it's not 
um, I didn't take the attitude. Oh, this is, you know, just anything. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a vibe. It's a, it's a certain energy and, and spirit that's, you know, that, uh, that comes with, you know, playing that music and making it sound authentic. And you can believe there were plenty of Jamaicans there making sure that we, <laughs> that we were getting it right. <laughs> and all those shows were sold out, by the way, man, that was, that was a, that was a really good experience. I, I think we did it right. Um, it's so interesting and beautiful playing that music because a lot of times I, you know, the way to, uh, I would think uh, of the drum fills in reggae as I would call them kind of incomplete, incomplete statements, you know, hmm. in, in between the verses. It's almost like you are, you're singing or responding to, uh, to, to the singer, to Bob Marley. I mean, actually, that that is exactly what um, Carlton was doing. I mean, he would, and it was like he was. It was like almost like a duet. That's that's how it sounded to me between him and Bob. The way he played off of his off of his vocal, you know, it it wasn't programmed. There wasn't like a set thing that he always did at a certain point. It was just however Bob flowed, he reacted, you know. But it was very subtle but it was so funky. Like you said, you know, he, you know, that one drop was so accurate. You, you didn't hear a flam with that side stick and the kick. It was one <laughs> that they call it a one drop for a reason. <laughs> Are you working on new music right now? Are you working on anything else? As a matter of fact, I am um, uh, like a lot of artists and musicians during the shutdown in, in 2020. Um, you know, I, I did some writing, and was able to take advantage of a lot of artists not touring and being at home. So I was able to do, you know, the remote recording and collaborate with a lot of different cats. And I was able to uh, work with this particular artist who I am a big fan of, um, harpist Brandy Younger out of uh, Brooklyn. Um, I just completed a single with her that I intend to release like first quarter of uh, 23 and um, I'm super excited about that one, man. Really, really excited about it. Uh, it's a beautiful tune. It's called RSPS, which stands for rich slave, poor slave and uh, features Brandy younger. And uh, yeah, that's, that's my next, uh, my next baby that I'm <laughs> trying to look into birth really soon. <laughs> yes. Looking forward to it. You're also doing some shows with Keisha Benjamin. Is that her name? Yeah, Lakeisha Benjamin. Um, Lakeisha Benjamin. Yeah. Uh, we did a great uh, festival, man, over the summer <laughs> where it opened for George Clinton and P-Funk. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was amazing. I mean, he actually gave us props, you know, afterwards, man. It was such such a cool experience. He was a very approachable cat, believe it or not. He was very, very responsive. He was very cool and supportive, and he really uh, liked our show. And, of course, we went crazy when they went on for the for the next three hours <laughs> they performed. <laughs> and you got a chance to, to meet him. I saw it on your Instagram. You were you know, talking to him for a minute. What did you ask him? Man, <laughs> it was funny because, you know, I didn't want to be that guy bothering him, you know, right before they were going to hit the stage. But 
I did want to be that guy. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I was just trying to wait for my moment. You know, we were backstage and uh, I think it was Greg Boyer, Trump trombonist. And, um, and I said, man, I, I'd like to get a, a picture with, uh, with George. And uh, Greg was like, man, he's cool. He's, he's, he's mad cool. Just, you know, just go over there. He's, he's cool. So I caught him while he was coming out of, you know, his tent. And he was uh, just kind of roaming around. He had some time before he hit the stage. And I just walked over to him and I said, uh, I said, hey, man, uh, I said, you mind if I get a picture with you? I was just playing drums with Lakeisha. And when I told him, he was like, oh, man, you were playing drums, man. Man, it was like talking to my uncle, like my my funk uncle, dude. I kid you not. <laughs> uncle. No, I kid you not. We sat down and one of the guys who was working with Lakeisha and uh, and the hosp- hospitality crew grabbed my camera and he was like, no, I got you. I got you. So he just started taking all these pictures while I sat down with George. So I just I didn't say anything. And once I said uh, told him I was playing drums. He just went on. He was like, man, you guys play some slick shit. First you start. It was funky. Then you got slick and started playing something different. And then you got funky again. <laughs> Dude, I was just like a kid. I was so giddy. I had I didn't have any questions. I was just, if you look at the pictures, you can see I was just like, <laughs> I was just listening to him and just laughing and enjoying the moment. That's, that's all. You know? So that's why those all those pictures look like that. We're both, I'm just laughing. And he's just on talking and talking. I'm just like, <laughs> if you if you had a chance to sit down with him and just ask him one once, you had one question to ask George. What would you ask? Him? I'm just curious. Wow, uh, the one question I would ask, um, I would ask him his advice on on longevity. What would he tell me? You know, uh, someone who who loves funk was raised on funk. You know, what's what's what are some things that that you would uh, say you you have to do for longevity? What would you recommend to someone that's young that's coming into New York? You've been in New York for many decades. What would you? What advice would you give them as far as a long-term career as a musician in New York City? Know your purpose. You know, know what it is that you uh, know what it is that you want to do, or at least have an idea. And also, you know, be open. Always be a student. Um, I mean, I think. Most of us, or uh, most cats that are successful doing this, um, no matter what they achieve or, or, or how far they go, they they're always students. That's that's the vibe I get from a lot of you know people who have been who've been doing this forever, um, and even you know icons. They're they're always students. They're always learning. I mean, look at look at Herbie, you know. Um, you know, of course, he's, you know, like a, I consider him a, a master teacher, but someone like that is still a student. They're still learning. They're still working with 
you know, younger cats. They still know about the up and coming, you know, the newbies, you know, who, who are coming onto the scene. So, you know, that's an attitude of, of being a student and being open. So, uh, you know, and, uh, and put your, put your big boy pants on because, <laughs> because it's real, whether you're, you know, it's real in, in this music world and being able to make it, whether you're in New York, Nashville, but any of the major, major cities where, you know, music is really happening. Um, you know, be a, be a student, man, and stay, and stay focused, stay the course, you know, kill the distractions, you know, on a daily, try and kill those distractions, man, and, and, and stay focused. And if it's, you know, if it's really real, the, the gift is really there. You, you're a talented cat. Um, you know, things will happen. They will happen. Somebody hears this and they want to know more about you. Where can they find you on the internets? On these internet streets? <laughs> <laughs> uh, website is ericbrowndrums.com. And uh, my Instagram is ericbrowndrummer. Um, Facebook, I'm on Facebook. It's the same photo. Um, on Twitter, um, my music is on all the streaming platforms. Um, you can just pull up Eric Brown. Um, if you type in you matter, you'll get my whole profile, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, wherever. And, uh, yeah, feel free to, you know, reach out, holla at me. Top five drummers of all time. Ooh, nice one. Okay. Since I just saw a post from a, another musician friend of mine, one of my biggest, or I'm a big fan of, uh, Steve Jordan, Will Kennedy, Vinny, Calhuda, Elvin, and Tony Williams. Nice. Yeah. Did you hear about Will Kennedy through that first Yellow Jackets album that he was on, Four Corners, or was it something else? I, I learned that he's, you know, Another Bay Area native, so ah. Bay, another Bay Area hero. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty that was a pretty dope experience because I was heavy and still um, a big fan of um, Ricky Lawson, mm -hmm. drummer. Um, prior to Will, so yeah, when that album dropped, um, my my ears uh, made the adjustment, and it was like, whoa. Okay. <laughs> then seeing him live was just like, wow. It was, it was like the first time uh, experiencing a, a drummer making me emotional. Like mm. the, way, the way he played um, was just so expressive and, and, and sensitive to the music. It just gave me a, a whole new thing, a, a way of looking at the drums and how to, how to approach them. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to talk. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Brown. And definitely check out You Matter, Eric Brown. Check out his website. Check out what he's doing. Amazing drummer. Great person. And one of the best hat-wearing persons you will ever see <laughs> walk the face of the earth. But again, thanks, man. And and I hopefully will see you soon next time you're playing somewhere, I'm definitely going to come check you out.
Thank you, brother. Blessings All right. to you. Talk soon. Talk to you soon, man. Thanks. To continue producing the high-quality podcast you're listening to, publishing engaging newsletter content, and posting YouTube videos, we would appreciate any financial contributions you can make. At this time, we have no advertisers, and we'd like to keep it that way. Our staff is small, but growing. We can only produce a show with listener contributions from people like you. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can sign up to be a monthly or annual subscriber at broadwaydrumming101.com. You can also contribute any amount you wish through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash broadwaydrumming101 or through Venmo at broadwaydrumming101. Or help keep us caffeinated by buying us a cup of coffee or a week's worth at buymeacoffee.com forward slash bd101. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD 101. We appreciate any support you can give. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page. You'll find more content that isn't featured on the podcast or on the Broadway Drumming 101 Instagram page. Make sure when you subscribe to the YouTube page, you click on the button to be notified when a new video is published. Be sure to visit our new shop at merchandise.broadwaydrumming101.com. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast.